Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Rebecca Wexler is here. She's an assistant professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law, where she teaches, researches, and writes on issues concerning data, technology, and criminal justice. She's a faculty co-director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's immensely accomplished, a fact that I'll simply summarize by noting that she has published regularly both in mainstream publications, such as the New York Times, as well as in academic journals, such as the Stanford Law Review. Today, we'll be talking about uh, data rights for criminal defendants. Uh, and it's just so great to have you on, Professor. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, you've brought attention to data access asymmetries in the criminal justice system. Uh, but I think before we dive into the details of that, it's good to just set a baseline and talk about data itself. Um, you know, it's ever proliferating, but you know, what devices record data and which ones are coming up in criminal investigations and criminal trials? Yeah, so as you know, as well as anybody else, probably better than most, we now just live in a data-driven economy where we're constantly being tracked and surveilled. Our devices are collecting data about everything we do, uh, who we contact, where we go, although nobody's going anywhere anymore. Um, Fitbit data, we're getting health data, your heartbeat, um, your, your, your water meter data, smart devices in your home, your light bulbs, you know, companies are collecting data all the time. People call this data exhaust. You just go through your life and you, and you give off these dusts of data that companies collect and then monetize. Um, so that can be stuff that you know that you're inputting like content that you write into uh, social media platform, content of your text messages, but it can also be something like um, you just log in timestamps, you know, um, for when you access different websites. And all of this kind of data can be relevant in criminal cases. It can be relevant. The smart water meter data has been used in a, in a case to try to determine, you know, whether a, when, when a murder had happened. The Fitbit data has been used actually to, to exonerate in a, a sexual assault case where one would expect <clears throat> different change of pace and heart rates that didn't match with the allegations. Um, I have a friend at the Legal Aid Society who was able to get information about data from a spoofing company where a complaining witness had uh, given police printouts of text messages and phone call logs that the criminal defendant had allegedly uh, sent to this person. And the, 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 the calls were actually not from the defendant. They were falsified calls. And this criminal defense counsel was able to identify that by just out of luck, subpoenaing the right spoofing company to disclose data about the true uh, original source of those calls and text messages. So, so as we become uh, just a data-driven society as a whole, you know, a lot of folks talk about law enforcement getting access to all this kinds of data to aid in prosecutions. And just like law enforcement investigators would sometimes want this to show guilt, criminal defense investigators also want 
the same types of access to the same sources of evidence in order to disprove the government's case and show innocence. So well, it's, yeah, it's any kind of any kind of data all over the place. Already the on your own device, the stuff that's in a, a tech company's hands. Already, or yeah, already so much to unpack there. I mean, um, it, it it I like that you use the word exhaust, and it kind of gives a sense of the the way the stakes go up. So you know, you go around through your life, and 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 the stakes can seem quite low for a lot of your your exhaust in the sense that you know it's it's around, but okay, so they're showing you uh, you know different ads that that can sometimes be sort of creepily accurate or whatever, and, and okay, uh, suddenly the stakes are huge when it when it could show where you were and exonerate you or or get you convicted. Um, and, and that, you know, the impact is suddenly immense. So if you could walk us through some of the ways that the law treats prosecutors and defendants differently in accessing that data, um, you know, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm happy to. And I, and, and let me frame it as a whole by saying we have an adversarial criminal legal system. That's not a given. Europe has a different system. But the U.S. has a system where we have one group that's police and prosecutors, and it's their job to investigate guilt and show evidence of guilt to the jury. And we've got another group, which is defense counsel. And it's defense counsel's job to investigate innocence and challenge the government's case, present that to the jury. So it actually surprises a lot of people, including real experts in the field, to realize it surprised me when I first found out prosecutors and law enforcement have zero constitutional, statutory, ethical, zero duty to investigate innocence. It's not their job. So you might have heard of things like there's Brady, this, this case from the mid 20th century that says, you know, the government can't sit on evidence of innocence or exculpatory evidence that it knows it has. It can't keep prosecuting somebody if it has evidence that they're actually innocent without disclosing that evidence to defense counsel. So there is this disclosure requirement if the government happens to have the evidence that shows you're innocent, but the government has no obligation to go get it. And they've no incentive to go get it because it's not their job to go get it. It's their job to prove guilt. So that's the stage on which these privacy statutes are coming in and, and as you just said, are imposing asymmetries and treating law enforcement and investigators differently than defense investigators. You understand the stakes of that if you realize that we rely on defense investigators to, to, to seek innocence. So as a result, we've got this, these baseline procedures where at least post-indictment, so after somebody's been charged with a crime, the criminal procedure rules, and I don't know how, like, I don't want to get too into the legal weeds because that's going to turn off lots of listeners, rightfully so, but the rules that govern, you know, how your case goes in criminal court after indictment actually presume that prosecutors and defendants are going to have equal access to information, that they have equal subpoena power. So we're at, you know, okay, earlier on, the government's got their warrants with the police, law enforcement, defense, not even the picture yet. Once you get to court, 
there's this thing called a subpoena that the judge can issue that comp- you know compels companies or people or witnesses to come and testify. And it's actually written in the Sixth Amendment that the defendant is supposed to have access to that compulsory process power to produce evidence in their favor. Privacy statutes have this problem where really well-meaning, well-intentioned legislators are passing laws to try to protect consumer privacy in this new data-driven world. And law enforcement has a powerful lobby. So law enforcement comes knocking, asking for an exception to the privacy law so that it doesn't impede law enforcement's investigation. And few, if anyone, comes knocking, asking for a similar exception for criminal defense counsel. They just don't have the same lobbying weight. And so you have this pattern where privacy statutes frequently end up giving law enforcement greater investigative power than criminal defendants. They block criminal defendants' investigative power while having exceptions for law enforcement. And that's the problem that I've been interested in. It actually seems like that could be um, one in a sort of cascading set of of, um, inequalities, especially as technology advances. Um, It kind of occurs to me in investigating crime in sort of a low-tech world, a defense attorney is equally as capable of going and tracking down people and, and interviewing them as a prosecutor. But the more you have these advanced uh, tech that you're trying to do forensic analysis of. So you've got to get the technology, you need to know how to investigate, you know, do the forensic analysis of it. And then what, as you're talking about, you need to be able to access it in the first place. So it actually seems like things like Brady disclosures, um, you know, you're not, you're only going to get a keyhole view of a case. Uh, you know, you'll know whatever the prosecutor knows, but if they haven't looked and, it, and, you know, done in the forensic analysis, it, it just, it, yeah, it seems like, um, it is a world where, you know, we expect the defendant to get special rights and actually it's slanted against them quite a bit. I think that's totally right. I like the way that you're characterizing. We, we expect the opposite. You expect that because the government's got all this power. The defense has special rights. Sorry, go oh, ahead. Yeah, no, one example I think of that actually... Um, you know, it's. It, I don't know how much this is. You'd call this criminal procedure, but you know, Maryland versus King, a prominent case involving DNA samples, and you know, it mentions in there that under the state's DNA system, Maryland system at the time, I, you know, I have no idea what it is now, but you get arrested, a DNA sample gets taken, and it gets checked against a database of unsolved crimes. You know, it doesn't get checked against the database of solved crimes. It's not trying to exonerate people who've already been convicted. It's solely looking to solve crimes that are unsolved. And, you know, laudable though the goal of solving unsolved crimes is, I mean, it, it, that is an asymmetry. Um, and it's the kind of thing that's very easy to miss if you're not thinking of it that way. So that's, that's enlightening. That's a really good example, actually, because some of the precedents, some of the places where these cases, that this issues come up before is exonerees difficulty getting access to those same state possessed DNA databases in order to get the evidence rerun or tested against them in their case to exonerate them. 
And so you have these stories where people, you know, were convicted, say pre-DNA, this is like Innocence Project, Bread and Butter, the great work that they've done that, that really helped make people aware in our society that there are such things as wrongful convictions that we, once we got DNA technology in here, we were able to use it to, to prove that people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they didn't commit, that a lot of those people, even the ones that ultimately succeeded, struggled for years to just get the government to rerun the evidence against government-possessed DNA databases. And there had to be special statutes passed, post-conviction ability for defendants to, 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 to demand these kinds of tests. So we have this history already where government possessed data has unequal access between the prosecution and the defense, at least post-conviction. And now what we've got is that data is no longer being possessed by the government. It's shifting to possession by private sector companies like 23andMe say, for instance, um, they now have a huge DNA database. Who can access that database to run it in a, in a case? Is it only gonna be accessible to prove guilt or is it also gonna be accessible to prove innocence or is it not gonna be accessible for either purpose? Well, you talked about uh, spoofing and that that is another aspect um, connecting to my idea of accelerating technology here. I mean, it, it's really actually sort of terrifying to think of having, um, getting arrested and say you didn't do it uh, and then you're presented texts that that you didn't write that are you, uh, that, is, that is scary. I mean, that is sort of uh, dystopian. I don't know if they've made a Black Mirror episode about that, but they should. Um, they and should, and I wanna shout out the attorney who was the defense attorney who exposed that in that case is a guy named Jerome Greco. And he is the lead digital forensics attorney at the Legal Aid Society in New York City. It was his client. So well, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm oh, no, please, it. please. And, and But it seems like this is only going to accelerate because we have deep fakes coming down the line. And, uh, you know, my understanding is at the moment, uh, you know, a sophisticated computers forensic uh, expert can can figure out, you know, still that a deep fake is a deep fake. But who knows how long that's um, going to continue for. And, but the more sophisticated it gets, the more a... a um, imbalance of resources between the two sides in a litigation can make a huge difference. Yeah, totally. The, the phrase accelerating technology is, is a good one. Um, and I think as you initially framed it, that there's that, that more technology is gonna exacerbate these imbalances of power just because it requires more resources to use it and access it. And that getting access to the raw data to run the technology is just step one. You also need access to the technology to analyze the data, which happens to also be disproportionately available to the government. And a key example there is, um, you know, some of the devices that are used to extract and analyze data from our tablets, our cell phones, our computers, the companies that build those won't even sell them to criminal defense counsels. You've got a company called Gray Key, and they don't even sell to anyone but law enforcement. So they, they, they say, even if you had the money, and forget that criminal defense counsel has so much less money than prosecutors across the country, but even if you got the money, we're not gonna sell it to you because you're not law enforcement. And that's the company policy. Well, that connects to um, another, well, I've, we've already kind of dipped into it a little bit, but another topic you've covered, which is access specifically to code. 
uh, which I, I think is a really interesting topic and I, I hadn't really thought about it until I, I ran into your work. Um, and you've kind of touched on why access to code is important to criminal defendants um, in, in some areas, but uh, what obstacles to accessing code? I mean, you've mentioned one of even not being able to get equipment, but if you want to discuss, you know, what are the obstacles that criminal defendants face to getting access to code? You know, that seems like a very interesting topic and important. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. So, so there's, right. So there's access to code, there's access to data, and then there are these questions about what gets in the way of the access, just as you framed it. Um, and my position is that a judge decides whether that information is relevant in any given case, just like a judge decides whether that information, whether any information is relevant in any given case. So when defense counsel is gonna go through this process of getting discovery, getting a subpoena to a non-party, a third party, they have to make some showing and they have to show to the judge information is relevant. That's the standard we apply to all sorts of sensitive information all the time in the criminal legal system. You, you, know, you want to compel somebody to come and testify against their own child, show that it's relevant. You wanna compel somebody to produce their personal diary that they might have you know, written private notes to themselves. If it's relevant in your case, uh, show that it's relevant, you get it disclosed. Um, and that's the standard that we applied all that sensitive information. And that's the standard we should apply to source code. And that's the standard we should apply to data. And instead what's happening is that tech companies are arguing that their information should get special protections that their information should be protected more than our personal communications with our family members and our close friends. Because they have either a trade secret right in that information or a, you know, this other issue that I've been working on is a particular federal privacy law to go back to the beginning of our conversation called the Store Communications Act. They argue that the Store Communications Act gives them special immunity to block criminal defense subpoenas. And so those are two areas where, you know, very powerful companies are using their wealth, their resources, their litigation firepower to make these claims that the law should treat them better than it treats everybody else. Well, you mentioned the Stored Communications Act, and, and that's probably a good opportunity to mention. So it was passed, I believe, in 1986. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about ways in which it is uh, dated, makes assumptions about the way email systems worked back. You know, there, there were barely were such things, but the way they worked back then. Um, and I think it, it definitely is worth mentioning, you know, as we all know, there's a lot of federal data. There, there's a big push for a federal data privacy law, and we're starting to see laws around the states. And um, listeners, and especially, you know, we have listeners on the podcast who are, who are in the policy field directly, um, you know, should be very aware of this issue as we, as we pass new laws and as the debate around a federal data privacy law proceeds in, in D.C. Yes. Um, the, the discussion of code, I, to circle back to that, you know, I, I think... Yeah. Um, it creates, as you've already touched on, it creates snags that are even over and above data. Um, I, I personally, I mean, the corporations, I think have a, more arrows in their quiver uh, on that one. You know, there's potential First Amendment issues. There's trade secret issues, as you mentioned. So it's just more complicated. Um, and one thing that uh, that 
interests me about this is, um, you know, the talk of code and everything about what happens with data as it sort of goes through the system and ends up being evidence in a trial. And that can be everything from algorithms to lab tests. It creates a lot of issues around like the confrontation clause. And as we've talked about the Fourth Amendment, and I mentioned Maryland versus King, you know, Justice Scalia wrote a blistering dissent in that case. Uh, he was quite the champion of confrontation clause rights, and he was a strong defender of the Fourth Amendment. So it, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about this, that it seems like an issue where there can be a wide range maybe of, of um, agreement and actually people with ideological priors that are divergent coming together on this issue. And I just was curious if you had thoughts on that. Well, I do. I Yeah, thanks for asking. I think that the criminal legal system is this moment where our country is starting to reckon with uh, all sorts of problems in our criminal legal system, that this moment that is a moment when we're seeing people from across the p political spectrum uh, joining forces to say, we've got to do something about mass incarceration. We've got to do something about these structural inequalities in the criminal legal system. And so it's, it's exciting in part because in a very polarized time, the, the uh, coalitions in reform of the criminal legal system don't align all the time with the other coalitions. And so it feels like there's an opportunity to have movement now with bipartisan support to fix some of these problems. So I agree, it's not uh, your usual um, uh, political bedfellows that, coming, that are coming together here. Um, but back to your point about code and the First Amendment and trade secrets and privacy, I wanna say the way I think we should be thinking about this is what does a normal person get to do to quash a criminal defense subpoena? What do they get to assert if you know, they're served with a subpoena that says, come to court and testify mm -hmm. and bring some papers and documents with you that you have possession of? That's, that's, our, that's where these procedures come from, uh, old school. They can't assert a First Amendment right not to testify on behalf of the criminal defendant. That doesn't fly. They can't normally assert a property right not to bring their papers to court. We get that you own those papers. Tough luck. We just subpoenaed them and you have to hand them over. So we don't usually think, same with privacy. You have a privacy interest in your personal communications in your diary. But you can argue to the judge, my privacy interest in this piece of paper is so important that it's unduly burdensome. That's it's legal jargon. You can argue to the judge that in that case, you shouldn't have to comply with a subpoena because of privacy, but not across the board. Privacy is not across the board a right not to hand over evidence in criminal cases. So all these kinds of claims that, that, that we're attaching, that we're allowing the developers to make in these cases to quash criminal defense subpoenas, these don't usually defeat due process, confrontation that you brought up, but also not even constitutional grounds, just normal old statutory subpoenas. We don't 
we don't say that you have a free speech right not to testify in court. In fact, it's the opposite. There is a maxim that the Supreme Court said over and over and over again, most recently in Trump v. Vance, which is that the public has a right to every person's evidence. That's our baseline presumption that the truth-seeking process of the judiciary is more important than these other conflicting values. And it's only in rare circumstances where we say, all right, you know, this very narrow category of information, say your communications with your attorney, they're going to be privileged, they're going to be exempt from the process of the courts. Well, certainly it would seem like uh, if it, when it's the government using its evidence to try to prove a case, um, and I'm not a criminal expert, so maybe this is not an apt analogy, but in the same way that you'd need a chain of custody uh, showing for evidence, if something is popping into what to outsiders is a black box, an algorithmic decision or a forensic decision or a test, uh, you know, a DNA test, that the government should be able to open up that box in the context of a criminal trial and let everybody see the steps that were made to get to that decision. I mean, I, I think you're talking about much more than that, but th that at least seems very clear in my mind. It's a really interesting issue. I mean, I agree with you. It's something that's it's being litigated in the courts right now. Uh, to what extent are confrontation rights, our constitutional rights uh, to cross-examine apply to automated systems? And that's it's just an interesting issue. Um, I will say most people should agree that if you have a constitutional right to get something because of the confrontation clause, for instance, right to confront the witnesses against you. And we say software now is going to count as a witness and therefore you have a right to cross-examine it. Some courts have ruled hinting that they might ultimately find that to be the case. And other courts have ruled thinking that no, you know, these confrontation rights don't really apply to automated systems, at least not where there's a couple steps from the developer to the output. So it's actually a pretty great and developing area of the case law right now. But I would argue that what, you know, for the use of your policymakers who are, you know, part of the audience here, that what policymakers should do on the Hill is say, well, what happens even when the constitution doesn't kick in or the con before the constitutional rights are clarified? You know, do we, the confrontation clause right, a lot of, folks think the confrontation clause right is a trial right, that it doesn't apply full force pre-trial. But we've got over 90% of our criminal cases pleading guilty pre-trial. Mm -hmm. And so that means you might have to be faced with taking a plea or, you know, going to trial to have a potential huge exposure of liability. You might have to make that choice without knowing a lot of this information that the confrontation clause would otherwise entitle you to. So, um, so I think that there's a place for policymakers to step in here, just like policymakers are responsible for drafting the rules of criminal procedure, the federal rules of evidence. These aren't constitutional, these are statutory rules. And Congress is the right place to say, these statutory rules apply to tech companies, to code and to data, the same way they apply to live witnesses with their personal papers. Well, that's a great a great way to to set the issues and and for us to think about it. I appreciate that. Um, 
And as a, in, in wrapping up, I'd actually like to step out um, to, to the 10,000 foot view. One thing I ran into in your work was a discussion you know, of, of the wider history of criminal forensics. And I find that act to be a very interesting history. And it, it connects to my previous question in talking about um, code and, and the various techniques, DNA testing that get used in um, modern criminal trials. We, there is a, I don't want to be too, uh, to overstate this, but there's kind of a fraught relationship between science and, and the criminal justice system down the decades. Um, a lot Hard of, to overstate. Okay. I was, fair. So um, true. And it, it's almost like um, a lot of the, the science that's used in the criminal process has been on kind of a parallel track that is, is not actually mainstream science, some of it. I mean, especially some of the stuff as we look back further in time. And I was, I was just hoping you could maybe talk about the general um, sort of lack of scientific rigor that runs throughout the history of, of criminal forensics. And I don't mean to say that like, um, P, like DNA testing, you know, it doesn't work or be conspiratorial or something like that. But I, but there is, there's some things that in the past were, were really considered to be reliable criminal evidence that now we sort of look at a little bit more like almost phrenology. And I was curious you, if you could talk to us about that. Phrenology is a good place to start, actually. <laughs> I mean, you want to go way back into the history. There's this guy, I'm trying to remember his name, I think his name is Galston, but I, I'm maybe misremembering his exact name, but this is like way, way, way back, actually had taken photographs of people's faces, I think like in the 19th century and tried to graph them on top of each other and create a criminal type, uh, you know, based on like almost like a, a deep fake fusing different people's faces and say, these are the facial features that we can use to identify criminals in general as a category of human. So, so if you go back far enough, it's, 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 it's really, you know, shocking, but even in more recent history, you're absolutely right. There's been a crisis of baseless and also fraudulent forensic science in our criminal courts. So we've had testimony about bite mark forensic evidence testifying, people testifying that they could identify a match between a bite mark and a suspect, despite not having any rigorous scientific studies about how bite marks might degrade over time, might be stretched with flesh. I mean, this is getting very gruesome, but it's one example of uh, a series of forensics, hair analysis, fiber analysis, forens uh, arson analysis, shaken baby syndrome that have all been debunked in recent years as we've gotten actual scientists to come and look at the stuff and say, it's, there's no scientific validity to these claims that you can identify um, how these things uh, uh, connect. Um, um, video forensics, a colleague of mine at Berkeley, Hani Farid has been doing these studies testing. People are claiming to be able to measure somebody's somebody's height from two-dimensional video or uniquely identify a, a, a piece of clothing from a photograph where uh, they're basing it on irregularities in the stitch patterns in the photograph on the piece of clothing and they have zero information about the baseline factory stitch patterns that produce those articles of clothing. You know, like they don't know how many times there's a 
uh, sewing machine that has a particular irregularity in it. So, and, and then they're making these claims that they're uniquely identifying somebody based on the stitch pattern in there. And so the kind of stuff that's been flying in the courts is it's, it's really upsetting. There was a 2009 report by the National Academy of Sciences that exposed a lot of the lack of scientific uh, foundational validity for many of the forensic methods. Um, and then in 2016, in the Obama administration, there was another report. What's happening now is that in part in response to that, uh, the forensic practitioners are saying, well, if we automate the stuff and we put it in software, that starts to seem a lot more objective, right? And so we're having actually a push towards more automation and software in order to get around, I think, some of these critiques and claims. But your point about DNA, I, I mean, I'll need to just pile on with that because, um, well, it's true that you've got gold standard DNA science and we feel quite secure about that, uh, where you've got a big amount of DNA, like a big pool of blood, um, and you got a, a suspect and it looks like it's, you know, a fight between the one person, the perpetrator and a victim. So you, you have a pretty good sense that any mixture of DNA there is two people. You could subtract the, the victim's known DNA and get the profile of the remainder and say, oh, that must be the suspect, the perpetrator, you know, that there's some scenarios where DNA we're, we're very confident in. And there's other scenarios where we're much less confident. And that's where you've got something like a swab of DNA from a doorknob where there could have been five, 10, three, 15 people touching that doorknob where some of the DNA on it could have been there for a long time. Say you get only a tiny amount of DNA. Uh, say parts of it's been degraded by the atmospheric exposure. There's some contamination risks. Now all of a sudden you've got a, a very complex DNA sample, and that's actually pushing to the edge of our current methodologies. And so the, the PCAST report out of the um, Obama White House actually talked about that edge case use of DNA science as one where we're not, we're still not totally sure about the scientific validity there. Well, that is all, uh, yeah, we could do a whole separate podcast on, on that, I'm sure. I mean, it, it just, I think, um, technology really is is doing amazing things and we're going to have to navigate the difference between what's reliable and what's not and and i've i've seen um i've seen some actually almost comical slow pleas in criminal trials uh, you know when the person actually was dead to rights um you know did it against dna evidence um and and i i in my limited experience in, in seeing criminal trials i i will say you know i think just gonna have to hope that juries, you know, are the the institution that we've wanted them to be down history, and that they can tell the difference between that kind of thing and and the legitimate doubts that that uh, connect to some of the science. Um, you know, maybe that's just my my um, my sad attempt to put a sunny, you know, hopeful ending to this. But I'll join you in that hope. Well, uh, Professor Wexler, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, thank Rebecca, you for the Wexler, opportunity. A professor at uh, Berkeley Law. It's it's been great. Um, I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Till next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, 
or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.